Hello sports fans and welcome to The Money Mitch Effect. I am your host Mitch Michaels. Great show lined up for you today. It's been a very interesting week. We're going to try to have some fun in the sports realm. Got a couple guests lined up to help me do just that. Jose Young's an MMA writer for Sports Illustrated. Is going to come on to talk John Jones' suspension, update on Brock Lesnar, and preview UFC 205. A lot of good matches on the card, headlined by Conor McGregor and Eddie Alvarez. And then my buddy Tyler Tesson is going to come on the show to discuss the NHL, teams that are making moves one month into the season, and we dive a little bit into the NFL. He gives a Super Bowl pick, should be a fun discussion there. Money Mitch Effect, streaming on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Let's start the show. All right, now joining the Money Mitch Effect in preparation of UFC 205 this Saturday, MMA writer for Sports Illustrated, Jose Young. Jose, thanks for joining the show. Anytime, Money Mitch. Glad to be on. So I know that we're going into uncharted territory on this podcast. I'm a big UFC fan, but we're getting into one of the biggest, maybe the biggest pay-per-views the sport has seen. Wanted to talk to the expert. Before we get to that, though, I want to ask you about one of the biggest names in the last couple of years back in the news, John Bones Jones. The suspension came down. He became the first UFC fighter to go to arbitration. He gets a one-year suspension for what he taking what he thought was Cialis, if I have the report right. It was something else. They make the suspension a year retroactively from July. So you cover the sport. You know how big of a deal he is, John Jones is, for the sport and for casual fans alike. What's your initial reaction to finally some closure on this ordeal? I'm a little surprised that it's a year. Uh, I was expecting a little less. I know that's what him and his team were pushing for. It was technically a tainted substance. It was estrogen blockers for a sexual performance pill. Normally for tainted sub- substances similar to like uh, Yoel Romero who got popped January 2015 or December 2015 I should say. It turned out he had a bad substance and they gave him like a six or nine month suspension. But uh, John Jones, this isn't his first run in with the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Uh, they basically suspended him for what they determined in quotes was reckless decision making where he basically accepted a sexual performance pill from a teammate and the only person he ran it by was his teammate he was basically like well this is this cleared by USADA and WADA the United States anti-doping agency and the world anti-doping agency and his, his teammate was just like yeah yeah it's it's good and then, then John Jones took it and the Nevada State Athletic Commission said he should have run it by the UFC should have done tests or whatever so they basically suspended him for a year retroactively to July, like you said, based on his, his reckless decision-making where he it, this could have been avoided if he had just thought it out. Yeah, it definitely sounds, and I know the adage in sports, you're responsible for what you put in your body. This isn't his first run-in, and I'm getting to the point now. This He's 29, he'll be 30 next year. How worried are you? I mean, how worried should we be as UFC fans, as fans of the sport, about this guy? He, This is the guy that has one loss on his record. It's a disqualification. He defended his belt, I think, eight times before yeah, uh, having it stripped. How worried should we be that a talent's going to be wasted and a big money-drawing uh, fighter isn't going to be in the fold for much longer? Well, I don't know if it'll be wasted because, like you said, he is 30. It's not like he's pushing 40 and he keeps getting in trouble. Like he, His his issue was like what UFC President Dana White said when when John Jones became the youngest UFC champion in the, in the history of the promotion, when he beat Shogun Hua back in, I believe, 2011, he was 24, 25, and 
he was just a young man thrust into the spotlight right away. He was still young in the sport. He was just so naturally gifted. He didn't have to put himself through the ringer. He basically willed himself to the top in such a short amount of time. And he was partying, and he was doing uh, his recreational drugs. He was doing everything. He, 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 was, he, was, he was on the wrong path, but he was still winning, and that was the... I don't want to say, like, that is a problem in his mind. He'll, he'll admit it. Mm-hmm. But this stuff keeps happening. It wasn't cocaine like the, last, like the first time. It wasn't drunk driving. It wasn't a hit and run. This was a, this was a sexual performance drug. So whether he was taking it for performance enhancing or not, we don't know. All I know is that it, he said it was a sexual performance pill. That's what the Nevada State Athletic Commission said. And this was just dumb. This was just a dumb decision. I don't think he meant for this to happen. And I would honestly, I would... With John Jones, you're always worried. I mean, I when I at UFC 200, which I was at covering, I, I was joking with the media that uh, I'm not gonna not be worried about John Jones until the the octagon door closes, and it proved to be true because like two days before is when he got he got the notification that he had an anti-doping violation. So John Jones says he's on the right path. He's full time in Albuquerque now. He does have a good team around him in the Jacksons camp. He has uh, a couple daughters down there. Uh, he's very close with his family. So, but I would always be a little worried about John Jones up until at least the cage door closes. Right. You hope that he's changed. Do you hope that? He's I, I the, hope so because he is, funny. in my opinion, the greatest fighter of all time, and he's turning thirty. <laughs> and it, it would be a, a travesty if, if we didn't get to see him keep doing what he does because you did, like you say, he does have a disqualification loss. But honestly, I don't even consider that a loss because that was uh, he got disqualified for twelve to six elbows, yeah. <laughs> which is I, like I've never seen anyone disqualified for that until that in instance. And even so, I don't even consider that a loss. In my mind, he's undefeated. Right, and he avenged that loss pretty handily. He, yeah. no, I agree. I think I want to see him. I want to see him fight that. But you know, you were right. He he went down a, a, the wrong path. He was thrust into the spotlight a little early. You'd like to think this is a different incident and he could just move on. There's time. He's not 30 yet. We just want to see John Jones fight some more. And we want to see him in the heavyweight division. Uh, I oh, think that's yeah. what a lot of people want to see. Oh, yeah. That's uh, that's going to add a lot of drama. And going to the heavyweight division, one final note before we go to UFC 205 preview. I haven't heard a lot recently with the Brock Lesnar suspension. He beats yeah. Mark Hunt at uh, UFC 200, and uh, then the suspension's come down. He gets popped for what I believe was similar to Jones, an estrogen blocker. Same thing. Haven't heard a lot about it. Where are we at with that? And is it possible that his win versus Hunt is going to be overturned or ruled a no contest? Yeah, it is possible. Uh, his team asked for a continuance, which means they wanted to push it. He was supposed to go, I believe, later this month or December, but they wanted to push it. I don't know the exact date. They're basically independently testing the, the skin cream that he used. They wanted test that out because if they if it turns out that it was that and he didn't knowingly take it or it was a tainted supplement then he wouldn't be suspended for as long he wouldn't be fined as much and but we're still waiting a year they did ask for a continuance the possibility of it ter- overturned to a no contest is definitely there but from what i'm hearing from mark hunt's team is he actually wants to sue the ufc or brock lesnar just because well, if, if anybody knows mark hunt he's a very emotional man yes yeah. he's, he's been a very big opponent of performance enhancing drugs and him more than anyone because i believe uh he fought bigfoot silva he tested positive for his testosterone he right. fought he fought a few fighters that that got popped and uh i think at the end after brock lesnar was like the third or fourth person that he fought that failed their drug test so if anyone has a right to be upset about performance enhancing drug it's him this was a loss 
I think he's threatening to sue the UFC or Brock Lesnar. I know Brock Lesnar made, I believe, $2.5 million to fight Mark Hunt, and Mark Hunt wants a portion of that, if not all of it. But Mark Hunt is an emotional guy, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah, it certainly will. And I'm also interested to see, Jose, you know that the heavyweight division, very interesting right now. Lesnar's yeah. win over Hunt put him right back in the game. Yeah. If it holds up and goes further, we could be looking at an interesting division with not just Stipe at the top, Wordum and a couple others. And I'm, yeah, we've I'm got Doom and Kane fighting in December. Uh, you obviously got Junior Dos Santos, who actually is the last man to beat Stipe Miocic in a, in a very close decision. It wasn't like he dominated him. I think if, if Stipe was offered anyone in the top 10, I believe you'd take Junior Dos Santos just because he wants to avenge that loss. And Junior's coming off that win over Ben Rothwell, who submitted Josh Barnett, one of the greatest grapplers in the history of the UFC's heavyweight division. So, yeah. Needless to say, the heavyweight division is about as competitive as it's been in the last few years. Certainly is. Talking with Jose Young's MMA writer for SI on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, it's that time, UFC 205 in New York City. New York City finally allowing ultimate fighting to take place. It's been a long path. Here we are this Saturday, the first of hopefully many UFC pay-per-views in New York City. And we'll start with a preview of the main card. We'll start with the women's bantamweight match between Misha Tate and Raquel Pennington. Now, here's what I know, Jose. Misha Tate coming off of a pretty brutal loss to Amanda Nunez where she lost the title. Fighting not exactly a, a tune-up, so to speak, Raquel Pennington, and correct me if I'm wrong, she got her start on Misha Tate's team uh, during yep. the season of the Ultimate Fighter, so this could be an intriguing matchup. Yeah, and, and Rocky, uh, or Raquel, is a veteran. I mean, she's been around, and she doesn't. She looks like a fighter, but it doesn't look like she would be an elite fighter. She like She's not muscular like the Holly Holmes and the Misha Tates and the Amanda Nunes, but she is very crafty. She's very difficult to finish, and even if you do beat her, it's usually very close. I believe her record is something like 8-6, and 9-6. and six. It doesn't jump off the page, but all of her losses are against top competition, and she has very, very slick boxing, great head movement, all-around exciting fighter, and yeah, this is definitely not a tune-up. I mean, you can look at the record. If you just look at the records, you assume Misha's going to run through her, but Rocky is very crafty and she took Holly Holm the distance and, and lost a very narrow split decision so if one of those judges had determined that she had won that fight then we wouldn't have had Holly Holm versus Ronda Rousey so yeah that should tell you how how good Rocky is. Right, this is going to be a, an interesting matchup and for Tate we know what's a, at stake with her she wants to get back into that title contention Pennington could vault herself right up into the mix with a win we're looking at the women's division. Nunez and Rousey looks to be on the horizon. December 30th. Yeah, December 30th. What's your takeaway from how this division is shaping up? Holmes lost the last couple fights. Tate has a tough one here. It's been jumbled, more so. Rousey dominated this division, and now yeah. there's a new wave of fighters rising up. Yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, I mean, it was, the, it was the Rousey show for so long, and then Holly came and spoiled it. Uh, well, I should have spoiled it. She won fair and square, and then Tate won, and then Nunez won, and now Nunez is going to fight Rousey. Uh, I think Valentino Shevchenko, who just beat Holly Holm, should fight Juliana Pena, who just beat Kazangano for the next number one contender for uh, Nunez and Rousey. Uh, I think that's the right thing to do. They're ranked right near each other. Then you got Rocky. Yeah, 135 is there's no clear cut number one contender. It's good for women's MMA. I mean, and Rousey dominating this this whole time, she'd quickly run out of opponents. But for the growth of women's mixed martial arts, I think it's good to have some competition. Finally got a deep women's bantamweight division. I think Dana White would definitely agree with you. They, he loves yep. the competition. Let's move on to the next fight on the card, welterweight division. 
You have Donald Cerrone, the cowboy, taking on Kelvin Gastelum. And a little bit of a backstory here, Jose. As you know, Cerrone wanted Robbie Lawler. And he, had he was pull, supposed to have he was Robbie supposed Lawler. to have him. He pulled out of the card. He gets Gastelum. Another interesting replacement. He's coming off just beating Johnny Hendricks. Are you taking the cowboy here, or do you think this is going to be a pretty close, uh, narrow fight here? Uh, I mean, Calvin, Calvin, I know pretty personally, because we're both Arizona guys. He won the Ultimate Fighter, one of the, I believe he's the youngest Ultimate Fighter winner. Took people by surprise when he won. He was one of the last picks, one of the youngest guys. Didn't really look, he won at 185 pounds, too, and then dropped to 170 right after. Mm-hmm. So that should tell you something. I mean, he was going from beating 185 to dropping to 170, and Cerrone pretty much did the opposite. He was fighting at 155. Lightweight, fought for the title, lost to former champion Rafael Dos Anjos pretty badly. So he's going from 155 to 170, but he just beat Rick Story, who's one who's the definition of a UFC veteran. You never want to count Cerrone out. I think his, his people, while he does have spectacular Muay Thai and great kickboxing and finishing ability on the feet, I think his jiu-jitsu game off his back is second to none. He has a wicked triangle choke from the bottom. But... Kelvin Gaslam's gas tank is nonstop, has excellent top game, mixes up strikes with takedowns well against the cage, and he is extremely thick. He's not tall, and he's not muscular. He just has a very, very thick body, very low to the ground wrestler's body, similar to Cain Velasquez in the heavyweight division. So if he can get Cerrone on the ground, I know Kelvin, Kelvin has, has a very, very good top game. Cerrone has a very good guard off his back. This is exciting. I don't want to say Cerrone just automatically takes it, but Kelvin has shocked a lot of fighters, so don't be surprised if Kelvin pulls this out. Right, and this could be one where, I mean, Waller is supposed to be here. He's looming. We'll see what happens. This is not your typical Cerrone just fights a fight and then gets Lawler. Anything could happen. I think they wanted to make that Lawler fight just because they are two of the biggest fan favorites, but I don't blame Lawler. I mean, he got viciously knocked out in July, and (laughs) Yeah. He said his brain just wasn't there, and with all the talk of CTE, and you don't want to, you don't want to risk that. And Cerrone's the first guy that said, "Don't worry about it." And speaking of Robbie Lawler, I mean, he had like three straight five-round fights, three straight wars, three straight, definitely three straight concussions. So, if if I'm his team, I'm giving, I'm telling him to to take a breather for a little while. And the next fight on this card, and maybe I would say one of the ones I'm looking the most forward to, you have Chris Weidman versus Yul Romero. And now this is an interesting fight to me. Romero, as you alluded to earlier, was suspended. Uh, he's an older guy, 38, 39 years old. Yep. Chris Weidman was reigning supreme in the middleweight division until Luke Rockhold handled him. So here we go. We have two fighters that think it's their time to get back to the top of their game. Weidman's coming in. It's New York. They And I remember reading this too, Jose, that they wanted him. Dana White really wanted him on this card for all the fight that he put forward to get UFC in yep. New York City. Well, he's on the card, and he's got his hands full with Yul Romero. Yeah, and Yul Romero is old, but his record is so... He doesn't have nearly as many fights as you expected just because he started so late. He is a Olympic wrestling silver medalist, so yeah. his wrestling is there, arguably the best in the entire division. But Chris Wyden was also an All-American. He showed that he has what it takes to be at the top of the 185-pound division, finishing Anderson Silva twice, beating future Hall of Famers in Vitor Belfort and Lyoto Machida. Yeah, this is a toss-up. I think Weidman put in the work. He was the face of the UFC's push to New York. He showed up at the Congress. He showed up at Senate. He walked around getting people to sign petitions and everything. So he put the work in. He deserves to be on it. I'm sure he's disappointed it's not a five-round title fight. But he did want Romero. Romero's coming off the win over Jacare, which arguably could be next in line for the title shot, too. Just shows you how good the 
pound division is. But this is, like you said, a toss-up. Romero hasn't fought in almost a year. Weidman also hasn't fought since that very same card. Romero beat Jacare, so no easy fight. I can't remember the last time Weidman was in a three-round fight. That's got to be weird. So you got to... You gotta go with him. His cardio has shown to be far superior to Romero, who seems to tire in the fourth and fifth round. And mm-hmm. if there's no fourth and fifth round, you know Weidman's gonna put the pace on him early. Right. And before we move on, I just one last note I wanted to ask you about. Weidman was so dominant, being Silva, getting the title. The loss to Rockhold, he tries that spinning uh, move, doesn't work out, spinning and then back, spinning yeah. back, and gets brutally beaten to the point where I was watching it stunned that it was still going on. Do you think yeah. he's the same fighter after that? I mean, it's hard. We've seen it in boxing where guys take a beating like that and ultimately never recover. Uh, I think his brain is fine because that was December 2015, so it, it has been almost a year he's recovered. I'm more concerned about his, his knees and his shoulders and his rotator cuff. He's been injured a lot in his career. He's had shoulder surgery. He's had meniscus surgery on both his knees. Mm-hmm. He's re-injured his ACL. He, he doesn't know how to pull back from the gas in training camp. He just needs to go, go, go. He, you He's one of those guys you have to like physically keep him from training sometimes. Like You have to be like, calm down, it's Sunday. Just relax, let your body <laughs> yeah. heal. So I am more concerned with if his knees and his elbows and his shins and everything can make it into the octagon. But I think mentally, physically, he'll be fine. I think the adrenaline of fighting in his home his home city is, is going to get him there. Yeah, he has a New Yorker. It should be fun to watch. One of the more underrated matches. The only New Yorker. Yeah. Pretty much on the main card. There we go. UFC 205. Previewing it with Jose Young's MMA writer for SI. All right, now I'm really going to need your expertise because I consider myself a fair UFC fan, but don't know too much about the women's strawweight division. But this is a pretty good fight lining up, lined up. Try and pronounce those names. Try yeah. Pronounce those okay, names. so I can get the I can get Carolina uh, close. Kowalkiewicz. Uh, Kowalkiewicz. Nope. No, I'm okay. off. Okay, Adelina I'm not going to try this. Kowalkiewicz. Kowalkiewicz. Okay, I gotta I gotta practice that. And you can say the second one, double J we as got, they call her. Joanna uh, Yanjacek, or people call her JJ, or she refers to herself as Joanna Champion. Well, she is just that 12-0 and 0 has been utterly dominant in her fights. But double K is I'm going to call her. You're gonna call, you can call her triple double K and JJ. Double K and JJ. Okay, now I know she came over from the Polish MMA circuit. Is this division going to go the road of the Bantamweight division, for the women's division, I should say? Are we about to see it? open up with the talent level coming through, or is this Double J's division? I think right now it is Joanna's uh, division. They, they're both from Poland. They actually fought in the amateur circuit. I think okay. it was both of their first or second fights, and Joanna won. Catalina's been very, very surprising. I mean, everyone knew how good she was when she came over, but she kind of, no one was talking about her as being a future title contender. Uh, she came in and and won her first fight against uh, Ronda Marcos, and then she came and, and beat uh, Heather Joe Clark. And then they matched her up with Rose Namajunas. This was after Rose put on that dominant performance over Paige Van Zandt and then beat Tisha Torres, who was another contender. And everyone was saying that it was going to be Rose and Yuana, Rose and Yuana, like that's the fight everyone has to make. And then Catalina didn't dominate Rose, but she just beat her. Like there's no question that Catalina won, but she didn't just steamroll her. So she could definitely win. She's crafty, like when I mentioned Rocky. She knows mm-hmm. placement. She knows footwork. She has excellent head movement. She has very underrated takedowns and clinches against the fence. She has wicked elbows in the clinch. But no one in that division has a better clinch, has better elbows, and has better striking than Joanna Jacek. I think she takes it. I don't know. I don't. I think it's on the verge of opening up. 
Uh, I question whether Joanna can keep making the cut to 115. She's a pretty tall straw weight. But you got fighters like Jessica Andrade is the first one. Uh, she cut down from 135 to 115, so she is a massive 115er, and wow. she is steamrolling <laughs> girls right now. Uh, you got a couple of fighters from Mexico coming up. You still got Rose. You still got Tisha Torres. You got uh, Jessica Aguilar, who's a former World Series of Fighting champion. You still got Carlos Spars, the former UFC champion out there. So nah, straw weight's opening up, but I still think it's a year or two away from being very, very competitive. I think Joanna wins this one, and we'll see who she's matched up with next. And then one final thing I wanted to ask you, being as dominant as Joanna is, is she a star in the making, or is her personality not really tailored towards... No, I think she is definitely a star in the making. She is very similar to Rousey in the fact that she doesn't hold back. She's She just moved to America. She's completely fluent in English. That definitely helps her. She's yep. living in Florida. She's a very big sneakerhead. She loves shoes. She loves, like, she'll like, if you ask her about Jordans or Reeboks or Adidas, and she'll, she'll talk with you for hours. She's definitely embraced the American lifestyle. She's very, very, very charismatic. She cleans up well. She does the photo shoots. Uh, she's very fan-friendly. She doesn't hold her tongue. I think she's 100% a star in the making. And if the women's bantamweight division continues to pump out champions and Rousey doesn't take that seat at the top again, I think Joanna definitely has what it takes to be the face of women's MMA. Wow, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this, Matt. So you talked me into this is it. A, this is a big, big fight. I tell you, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding about that. And it's obvious in the fact where it is on the card. I mean, you saw some of the names that we said before. This is a big fight. And it, 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 it takes gonna... a lot. It's going to sound weird. It takes a lot for the UFC to book two fighters from the same country on a fight card in, in the United States. If this was a fight card in Poland, it would be massive. But it just shows you how important Joanna is to their plans, that they're going to put her on the biggest fight card ever. So we got two more matches to discuss here on the Money Mitch Effect with Jose Young's UFC 205. All right, the second last fight on the card here, the welterweight title up for grabs, Tyron Woodley defending against Steven Thompson. And it, we can switch sports here. They always talk about trap games and trap fights. I don't even know if that narrative fits here. Tyron Woodley's the champ. All credit to him. You mentioned the knockout over Robbie Lawler. That was brutal. But Steven Thompson's a fighter. This is going to be a very tough test, maybe the toughest test of Woodley's career when he faces Thompson. Yeah, and I have like, all credit to Woodley. I think Woodley just, he fair and square crushed Robbie Lawler with a vicious overhand right. But I think Stephen Thompson had a much harder path to the title. I mean, yeah. he beat Jake Ellenberger. Yeah. He beat him with a spinning mm-hmm. back kick to the face. He beat Johnny Hendricks with a front kick to the body in the first round. And then he went out there and just put a kickboxing clinic on Rory McDonald, who I thought for years was the uncrowned champion. I thought Rory McDonald's going to win the UFC's welterweight division mm-hmm. and hold it for a long time. And Stephen Thompson nullified every entire attack, kept him at bay, broke his nose in the first round, and just put an absolute striking clinic on. Ty Woodley, like I said, fair and square beat Robbie Lawler, but that was his first fight in a year and a half, and he was coming off a split decision over Kelvin Gaslam, who I honestly think Kelvin won that fight. But Tyron won. I had no issues with him winning. I think that was so close, but it wasn't a dominant performance. Mm-hmm. I think Stephen Thompson has fought like three or four times in the span that Tyron Woodley's fought once. And I think Stephen Thompson fought much better competition than Tyron Woodley took. So I think Stephen Thompson will win, but Tyron Woodley is a physical specimen. He is a freak of nature, very muscular, low to the ground, excellent wrestling, and has very long arms. I mean, people don't talk about that, but his reach is longer than... Thompson, but Thompson is taller, so 
very, very interesting matchup. It's the striker versus the wrestler. And Stephen Thompson does train with Chris Weidman. So you know his wrestling practice is there. So it's not as a clear cut like I, like I want to make it, but I I think Stephen Thompson wins. But Tyron Woodley is a bad, bad man. Yeah, I, I, I don't get the hate that he, a lot of fans yeah. don't like him just for the fact that uh, he won the fight and then immediately wanted to take a money fight. And it seemed like he waited a long time and sat out, rather sit on the sidelines and wait for a title shot than keep active. I don't, I don't get the hate right now. But I think Stephen Thompson takes this one. Right, and I think Woodley, to go off your point, I respect the fact that he took this fight. That he took this fight in this yeah, position. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he would have taken it if it wasn't a if it wasn't a UFC 205. Right, that's true. But this isn't a this isn't an easy fight as you alluded to. And you know, we talked about Woodley coming out of uh, the St. Louis area, a a dominant wrestler at Missouri. When Thompson yep. goes out of fight, he beat Rory McDonald, who has a victory over Tyron Woodley. So it's always hard to I, compare resumes, yep. but. Hey. Dominant. That fight yeah. at, uh, I believe, UFC 174 in June, June 2014, I want to say, that was a, that was about as masterful of a performance that, that Rory McDonald put on than, that you will ever see. Tyron Woodley was literally a deer in the headlights in that fight, and Stephen Thompson put a clinic on Rory McDonald. So this fight is yeah. definitely exciting. <laughs> Transitive property not looking good for Woodley, but he is the champ for a reason. And speaking, exactly. And speaking of that... The final match, the main event, the last fight on the card to go, the lightweight champion Eddie Alvarez is going to fight Conor McGregor. All right, now we had a feeling that, everybody had a feeling that Conor McGregor was going to find his way onto the card. But the first thing I want to talk to you about, Jose, how bad do you feel for Aldo? I mean, the guy just wants his rematch, can't get it, is visibly frustrated. He's going to have to keep waiting. What do you think about that whole situation? I definitely feel for him. I mean, back when Aldo was the featherweight champion, and, and make no mistake about it, Jose Aldo is hands down the greatest featherweight in the history of MMA. Connor is a, is, I would put him number two right now, and he very well could surpass Aldo, but Connor McGregor hasn't fought at 145 since he beat Aldo a year ago, uh, has, has yet to defend his belt. Claims he can still make 145, but when he makes 145, he looks terrible. He looks like a skeleton. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if health-wise it's wise for him, but... When Jose Aldo was reigning atop the 145-pound division, he was running out of competition, and he asked Dana White if he could go up to lightweight and challenge for a second belt. So basically, he asked if he could do what Conor McGregor is doing now, and Dana White says, if you do that, you have to give up your featherweight championship. And then, flash forward a few years, Conor goes, I want to fight for my second belt. Dana White goes, then you have to give up your featherweight championship. Conor McGregor says, make me. And Dana White lets him do it. So I definitely feel I definitely feel for Jose Aldo because if anyone has put in the work at 145, it's him. I mean, he dominated the 145-pound division. He has the interim championship. And the, the unwritten rule is if the champion is healthy and there's an interim champion waiting, then you have to fight him. I mean, it is unheard of to have an undisputed and an interim champion in the same weight class that are both healthy that aren't fighting. That is just bizarre. So if I'm Aldo, I don't take any other fight unless it's a title unification fight. Whether Connor gives up the belt and Aldo fights the winner of Anthony Pettis and Max Holloway in December is one thing, but uh, I definitely feel for Aldo. He, he definitely deserves his rematch, or let alone another title fight. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. McGregor's had that title for how long and he hasn't defended it? I 11 mean, months. <laughs> That's... I can't think of a, uh, it's like, you know, the Patriots or the Broncos just want to take the season off and just meet match in the playoffs. But getting to the fight, uh, this is, again, McGregor has taken some tough fights here. 
The Diaz trilogy is going to be put on hold. He's fighting Eddie Alvarez, who you know is a very, very dangerous fighter, who does a lot of things, Jose, that Conor McGregor can't do. It's a big contrast in styles. How would you break this fight down? This is hard. I mean, Eddie Alvarez, there is no other fighter that has, a, that has had a harder path to UFC gold than Eddie Alvarez. I mean, he fought at Reality Fighting. He fought at the Bodog. He fight for Elite XC. And these are promotions that don't even exist anymore. He would go from one to the next to the next, and then he went to Bellator, and then he won the title, and then he lost it, and then he got in that big legal battle and basically lost two years of his fighting career. Finally makes it to the UFC, stumbles, and then climbs his way back, beats former Strikeforce champion, beats former UFC champion, and then wins the UFC title. I mean... There's a reason they call him the Underground King, and if anyone deserves it for just the amount of work that he has put in over his entire career, it is Eddie Alvarez. I mean, I don't want to say Conor had the easiest path because it's the UFC, and there's no easy fights in the UFC, but if he beat Dennis Seaver to earn his fight, his first title fight, I mean, and Eddie Alvarez has fought in four guys who would smoke Dennis Seaver. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Eddie, Eddie's a shorter guy, shorter reach. More hard than any, almost anyone in all, the entire sport. Comes from Philly, comes rough upbringing. Excellent wrestling, excellent footwork, excellent boxing. All around great fighter. But similar to Robbie Lawler is he has been in a lot of wars. And he has been tagged on the chin a lot. He's been rocked a lot. He has the footwork, he has the wrestling, he has the striking, he has the boxing, the head movement, everything. But if you watch his fights against Kawajiri... Both his fights against Michael Chandler, his fight against Dal Cerrone, he has left his chin open, and he has been tagged, and he has been on Queer Street several times. And yes, to his credit, he recovered and won fights, but you can't live off of your chin, especially when you've had almost 40 professional fights, and Connor's coming off the hardest fight of his career. Before that, he was barely getting tagged. Connor's left hand is arguably the most deadly in all of MMA arguably the most deadly strike in all of MMA. His left hand is the one that put Jose Aldo out in 13 seconds. He's won almost all of his TKOs with his left hand. He hides it very well. He'll paw with the right and then just whip his left. He'll, he'll paw with the right, come in with the lead right uppercut and follow through with a straight left. Arp uses his distance, uses his reach, uses angles, uses his footwork. His fighter IQ is so off the charts. And for as much as people like to say that Connor gets his way a lot there are not many fighters that are as smart as he is inside that cage i'm not talking about business smart i'm not talking about he can do a math problem if you talk about fighting with him he is so smart and he is a student of the game and he is obsessed with getting better and learning techniques and how to implement them implement them in the cage and that is very dangerous because yes eddie alvarez beat anthony pettis and beat gilbert melendez but conor mcgregor has seen that and he knows what eddie alvarez can do and if Conor McGregor sees something, he doesn't usually tend to make the same mistakes. He's like a sponge when it comes to MMA knowledge. So I think Eddie Alvarez's cardio is second to none. Conor McGregor showed his cardio second to none. That fourth round against Nate Diaz at UFC 202 was, blew me away. That was right. one of the most impressive performances I've seen from a fighter out of Conor McGregor to recover from that onslaught and come out and win another mm-hmm. round. I think it's either going to be a second-round TKO for Connor, or yeah. Eddie's going to turn the sooner wrestling match and grind him into the cage. It's, this well, is a toss-up. So it's, it's this is round. as close to a toss-up as you can get, but no one is out of it. I know a lot of people who are casual fans, which I don't blame, because Connor is definitely the guy that draws fighters in, just like Floyd Mayweather. People are going to watch Floyd Mayweather fight twice a year, and that's the only boxing they're going to watch. Mm-hmm. 
I get that. Same thing as Conor McGregor. Same thing as Ronda Rousey. Same thing as Brock Lesnar. A lot of people just assume that Conor's going to win. They don't know how good Eddie Alvarez is, and it's it's a real shame. And he could prove that he is the real deal. But Conor, for as much as people like to bag on the casual fans, is an exceptional fighter. And this is as close a fight as you can get. Well, I think the UFC is pretty lucky in that regard. Then exactly, you know. And looking at it, you addressed the cardio. That was the one, the knock on him after he lost the first fight to Diaz. He came out, as you said, did not make the same mistakes twice in that second fight. Learned from it. I'm excited, and I'm not just excited because everything you said is true, and there are still people that don't know what to do. It's a toss-up. I can't remember a big-time fight with this bus promotion split almost down the middle. Yeah, it's the UFC could have done a lot worse for the main event of the biggest card ever, and both fighters look to be healthy. Both fighters are students of the game. I know they talk a lot of trash, but I think Eddie is a little bitter on how easy, like I said, that he... Mm-hmm really had to put himself through their ringer to get to the UFC and Connor. I don't want to say talked his way because he has a cult following and they his fans basically willed him to the top and to his credit he got to the top and he beat the greatest featherweight in 13 seconds. Fair mm-hmm. play to him, but he definitely has a lot of work to do after right. this fight. Holding two belts at the same time has never been done in the history of the UFC. So, history could very well be made on uh, after this Saturday. Sure can. Well, before I let you go, Jose, the last thing I want to talk about is Conor McGregor. And not just McGregor, but Rousey, but Lesnar, Jones, the top names. The names, the figureheads of the sport, some trash talk, some promotion. Do you think this is good for UFC? Do you think some of it's good, maybe some of it's bad? McGregor likes to talk trash. He likes to promote himself. He likes to talk down and look down at the competition. At the end of the day, though, more eyeballs are watching. How do you assess his overall impact, positively or negatively? I mean, he's definitely good for the game. I mean, more people are tuning in, and not just for the UFC business-wise and bringing in eyeballs to the fans. I mean, this is helping all of the fighters. I mean, Conor McGregor being on a card is a win for all the fighters on that card. I mean, he makes $5 million to fight. That raises everyone's Mm -hmm. pay. I'm sure some of the fighters don't like his antics, but they can't deny he's not. He's not bad for the sport. I mean, it honestly comes down to preference. I personally like the fighters that are very respectful and are legitimate martial artists, like Jose Aldo, like, like the Anderson Silvas, like the George St. Pierre's, and like Demetrius Johnson, who is, we didn't even talk about. He's the best fighter on planet Earth right now, not named yeah. John Jones. And those guys are some of the humblest, nicest guys you'll ever meet. But Jose Aldo never had a pay-per-view gate over 500000 without Conor McGregor. And that True. just shows you what people want to see. So it just, it just comes down to personal taste. But he's definitely not bad for the sport. Right. The show helps. It gets the eyeballs there. Exactly. Like I guess every sport needs villains. You need someone that you root against. And there's exactly. for every for fan of McGregor. For as much people so. hate, hate Floyd Mayweather, 4.6 million people tuned in to watch him fight Manny Pacquiao. Yeah, and I also think, too, it, you can see that it, it is mostly, I should say, a good amount of show. I thought... McGregor handled his loss, the, the Diaz fight with yeah. class. I thought he owned up to it. And he got right back. He took that fight again. I mean, well, there was the whole drama thing. But he fought him again, I should say. And he's not running from the steep competition. Nope. He could be Definitely making a not. lot. You know he could be making a lot of money on a lot of cards against a lot less talented fighters. Yep, but he takes and he'll fight fights. anybody. He will. Well, Jose, thanks him again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. This was fun. We'll have, Dude, to have you, uh, we'll have to have you previewing a lot of UFC pay-per-views coming up. Dude, <laughs> next time we talk, we, we'll talk about the Conor Eddie Pete. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is that is guaranteed. Thanks again. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Mitch.
Big thanks to Jose Yanis for coming on the show. A very, very sharp guy when it comes to the world of ultimate fighting. Won't be the last time we hear from him, and his words were very, very accurate on what's going down at UFC 205. I can't wait. Should be one of the best, if not the best, pay-per-views in UFC history. All right, now it's time to switch sports and talk to Tyler Tesson. We were a college hockey teammates at St. Louis University. We're going to break down the NHL, talk a little bit about what's going on in the National Football League, all that and more. It's the Money Mitch Effect, part two. Here we go. Okay, it's time to talk some hockey, and with that, I've got a special guest on the line from my St. Louis University days, Tyler Tesson, joining me. Kind of college hockey player like myself, Tyler, thanks for joining the show. Ah, thanks for having me on. I, uh, I'm glad you were able to step away from Mac football, for one, and this unbelievably fair, good-hearted election tonight as we take this interview with the presidential election coming down to the end. I'm glad you were able to get away from the TV for this. Yeah, I'm going to try and uh, not let it distract me while we're doing this tonight. So we're going to start with some NHL stuff, and I haven't really had a chance to talk hockey in a while. So distracted by some things, the Indians in the World Series, uh, the football, college and pro weeks getting pretty intense. But the NHL, almost a, uh, pretty much a month in now, if you can believe that. Until one of the best stories this year has been the Edmonton Oilers, 9-3-1 going into tonight. They're in a tight one as we speak with the Pittsburgh Penguins. But, Tyler, they've, they have stacked number one picks for the last couple of years. It's become a running joke. Their defense, the same thing, a running joke. But for the first time in several years, they've put something together. Are you buying the Oilers? I know it's early, but are you buying them as a legitimate team? That's a playoff team for sure. Actually, I saw something earlier. They're actually second favorites for the Cup right now tied with the Blackhawks. Wow. I don't know if I would stretch it that far yet, but I'd definitely buy them as a playoff team. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think it helps the division that they're in. We know how much stronger the Central is than the Pacific with the slow starts that certain teams, the Kings, the Ducks, have had to uh, begin the season. Yeah. The fact that they're playing some defense, not the best defense, but just some, is a big step up from what they've been doing. But it's also on McDavid. I mean, we, we've been waiting for the next generation, the, the changing of the guard, with the Crosby and the Ovechkins getting, you know, Ovechkins 30, 31, Crosby will be 30 next year, having played over a decade. Finally, we've seen what the future looks like, and I would say within the next two and a half years, if that's a safe estimate, Connor McDavid, probably sooner, is going to be the best player in the league? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. He, I mean, he reminds me a lot of Crosby-style play, but he just his speed is just something yeah. that we haven't seen in a while for someone with that much talent. Yeah, it isn't just him. He's got some good line mates around him. One of the guys, especially that's done well, who uh, I know you're familiar with, Pat Maroon on the team there, gives them some size. They added Milan Lucic. They were getting good play out of Jordan Eberle. But McDavid is the straw that stirs the drink. His speed is something we haven't really seen. I don't know that I've seen a faster player in my lifetime. But having said that, I do think it's the defensive side of things that's going to be their downfall eventually. Could they win the Pacific, though? I'm definitely not ruling that out. Yeah, and as you well know, when L.A. hit they get quick back anytime soon, they're definitely going to be a player. But if they can hold off right now, they're definitely going to have a good chance. 
Yeah, I think it's a little early for the Stanley Cup predictions for Edmonton, but the future does look bright. McDavid, at the, as a captain, only 19 years old, it's only going to get better for them. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, how all the criticism they were taking in the preseason or in the offseason for trading Taylor Hall and they get Larson on D. So we never know. It may end up working out for him in the long haul. Right, it could. I, I still think <laughs> I still think that was a little lopsided of a trade. Not that trading Hall was the was the wrong move. I agreed with that, but it seemed like it was just a rush, uh, a quick move, I should say. But no, yeah. you're right. Larson could be a player for them in the future. So going forward now, as we look at another team, and it's funny, Tyler, because every year people are freaking out about slow starts around the league. Chicago, it was laughable that people were questioning whether or not they'd be legitimate after stumbling out of the gates. Six straight wins. They're 9-3-1, and one, tied with the Oilers going into tonight with the best record in the West. Do you think the Blackhawks, I know it's hard to compare them to what they've done because they've had so much success, but do you think they're gearing up for another lengthy run come playoff time? It's hard to say they're not. They're just one of those teams you can pretty much just pencil in the conference finals or the cup finals pretty much every year since the Tays came, kind of regime came in and kind of turned everything around there. It's they're that one team in the NHL that you can pretty much count on every year. Yeah, it takes a Herculean effort to beat them, as the Blues saw last year. Beating them in seven, taking a lot out of them to do so. Amnisov is the difference maker. I know Kane's great. He's going to be great. He's going to be in the MVP conversation again. But Amnisov actually leading the league in scoring right now. I know he gets to play with Kane, and he's getting to play with Panarin. But if he's playing at a high level, too, you have three lethal forwards on that top line. The biggest question with this team, Tyler, was their back-end players, their third- and fourth-liners. There's a lot of turnover when you have the two highest-paid players in the league, like Kane and Taves. But I'm with you. I think they're going to be fine. And I would argue that with that central division being so tough, winning it is maybe as important as any division because you end up as a 2-3 playing the Blues, playing the Wild, playing the Stars, or the Predators. I think if you can win the division, you set yourself up a lot better. Yeah, and they're back in. You know, they still have Crawford there, solid NHL goalie, and then you also have Keith and Seabrook back there, and then they get Campbell back from his Florida vacation this year, too. Yeah, he was a, he was a big pickup. I'm amazed by what the Bowmans have done because they have to keep staying ahead of the cap given how much money their top guys are getting, making some tough decisions. Brandon said two years ago gone, but they still find a way to find good guys and to develop them. But I want to talk now with Tyler Tessa on the Money Mitch Effect. You're a St. Louis guy. The Blues are still looking for their first Stanley Cup. Last year they made a breakthrough of sorts, getting to the conference finals, losing in six games to the Sharks. Some moves in the offseason. David Backus, for one, he is no longer with the team up in Boston. They dangled Kevin Shattenkirk for a while. That's an awkward situation still ongoing. He remains on the team. This year they started out good. They struggled a little bit recently. They're still a very solid team. But what's the word in St. Louis? Do you think this team is ready to keep building on what they did last year? Um, going into the year, there was a lot of skepticism in St. Louis. Everyone kind of thought we were going to take a step back. You know, you lose Beckett, you lose Brower. Those are kind of your two staples up front. You guys that can grind it in the playoffs. And then they want kind of a smaller, faster team this year. But quick start, get everyone, you know, optimistic, and then all of a sudden it hit the hall. But looks like they're getting back on the right track now, and they have Schwartz and Fabry who have three goals between them this year so far, so you have to think that's going right. to get better as the season goes along. Right. I think, too, 
it's funny. We talked about this before uh, several times, actually. With the way Ken Hitchcock coaches, the way he attacks the regular season, and they rack up wins in the regular season, playoff shortcomings notwithstanding, I don't know what else the Blues could do in the regular season. It's all They're going to make the playoffs. They're going to be a top two or three team in the Central, and it's going to be about what they do there. And I don't want to say the season's for nothing, but I think we will have to wait and see, like we always do, what this team does come playoff time. And it is going to be on the young guys. You said Schwartz and Fabry have to play if this team has any cup aspirations whatsoever. Yeah, and, you know, the other interesting aspect is that you don't see it very often when you have the coach in waiting in the NHL sitting around yeah. with a team that made it to the cup. I know. Made it deep in the playoffs, and then so what if the Blues are kind of outside looking in at the midway point in the season? Do you just kind of move on and hope you get a jump start and make the playoffs or just get a start on next year? It's kind of one of those awkward positions. Right, and I wanted to ask you about the Shattenkirk situation. What do you think's going through his mind and the team's mind, especially his teammates, where he was, I mean, he was basically dangled all offseason. That has to feel a little awkward for a guy that's as good as he is. Yeah, I mean, he's second on the team right now in points, so it's hard to say it's having a real negative effect on him, but obviously any player that's going to wear on you, but, you know, I'm sure he's had those conversations with Armstrong and Hitchcock about what their plan is long-term with him, but I would... I would think he's safe for now, but it is he's a lot of criticism from the fans around town, which I never quite understood. Yeah. It's not a Barrett Jackman or an Eric Brewer situation. I don't put, <laughs> yeah, exactly. put him in that class. The only other thing with the Blues I'm really interested in seeing is now that it's Jake Allen's net, and now for the first time in, God, I don't know, a couple, four or five years, there's not a timeshare at goalie. We'll see what Allen looks like when he's the guy, when he has to play a, a few more games and he doesn't get the luxury of being subbed out for. I think that was one of the struggles in the beginning. They were kind of leaning on um, Abby, and then the Blues kind of hit that downward get, and then Hutton actually jumped in and played really well for a few games mm-hmm. and kind of got him a couple W's going. So I, I don't think we're looking at a split like last year, but a lot of blue success is going to fall on Jake Allen. Should be interesting to see. A couple other teams in the West, though, that are that are struggling, and one out of the gate that surprised me, I think a team that could make some serious runs or could potentially make runs at the Stanley Cup. Nashville Predators, they're struggling. We mentioned the Kings are struggling. The Ducks seem to be getting a little bit better. For some of these teams, do you think it's too early to hit the panic button, or do you see long-term trends of some contenders that might be not looking so good this year? Yeah, the Ducks I definitely wouldn't worry about. They kind of notoriously started off slow, but I wouldn't worry about them. I think they'll get it going. Nashville's the team I would kind of be in panic mode if I was a Predators fan. That one, it's just kind of mind-boggling. Everyone has high hopes for them coming in the year, and it's, it's just not going well so far. Yeah, I think to go off that, Nashville... I'm surprised that defensively and at their goaltender position specifically, they're they're a little weaker than a lot of people expected. It's always been their strength. Now it's their weakness. You're right with the Ducks. It's a, they're another team like the Blues. They've they've choked so many times in the playoffs. Yeah. I have no uh, doubt they'll make it back. But what they do when they get there remains to be seen. And and I do think the Kings they need quick back. They're doing a good job, kind of riding the ship. Daryl Sutter's too good of a coach. But when they get their goalie back, it could be a blessing in disguise, honestly. I mean, giving Quick a rest because Lord knows he needs it after how much he's played the last couple of years. Yeah, do you think they end up making the deal or do you think they just wait it out? 
I think they're actually okay on that regard with uh, Peter Budai, who actually has NHL experience. That's the luxury of having uh, one of the oldest minor league goalies last year, a guy that's played uh, around the block in Peter Budai. They got issues long-term with the cap. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I think they're going to ride this season out with pretty much what they have. But yeah. Tyler Toffoli's up on a contract here. could be interesting to see how they address that, given what the market rate for a forward of his caliber is. One more thing on Nashville. What do you think kind of the Shea Weber effect is there with them leaving? He was kind of, you know, cornerstone player for the organization and kind of gets traded unexpectedly. Yeah. Do you I think, think that has anything to do with the struggle? I do. I think long-term, I would agree with the narrative that Subban is going to be a better fit for Nashville and is going to prosper. But there's a lot of things you know in the game of hockey that don't show up on the stat sheet. And it's almost like uh, there's things Weber did defensively. There's things he did with his physical presence. And even even offense with his weapon on the uh, on the shot on the uh, power play that don't make the stat sheet. And I think they just assumed that they would be able to replace that with Subban with the rest of the team. He is a big loss in that locker room as well. Will they overcome it? I think so. There's too much talent there. But, yeah, I think that's a loss. I think... It, the trade d- didn't make a whole lot of sense to me just from the fact that these are two top five, top six guys with hefty contracts. I don't know that it was necessary, but yeah, and to answer your question, I think there's a hole that they're missing right now. So I'm going to segue now into the East, talking with Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch effect, and go to Shea Weber's current team, the Montreal Canadiens, who, and they lost 10 nothing to the Blue Jackets. I don't know what happened there. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a scouting report of that game, yeah. but... But that game notwithstanding, they're at the top of the NHL, the best team right now, a team that is very, very dangerous. Do you think Weber is the main reason for that? Do you think there's other things? This is a 10-1-1 team that has been playing lights out. Yeah, I, mean, I think Weber has a big part to do with that. You know, another guy who on the stat, she isn't a huge contributor, but even just leadership-wise, adding Shaw to the team as well, he's got some Stanley Cups under his belt and just bringing some leadership to the team. But then you got to go back to Carey Price. He's the guy that that team depends on night in and night out. The night he takes a rest, you know, they end up giving up <laughs> 10 goals. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because without that 10-goal game, they have given up less than 20 goals that game notwithstanding. So 10 of their 28 total goals against happened in <laughs> one game. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. But seriously, they're the team that they've changed their identity. They've become a defense-first team. Not that Subban's not committed to defense, but you know he's more of an offensive guy. And Weber Weber makes his bones in the defensive end. They've changed their approach, getting guys like Shaw that are physical, that fight in the defensive end, and it's working. Yeah, definitely agree there. Now, another division rivaling the Central is the Metropolitan, which I don't know why Gary Bettman decided to name it that, so we'll just move on from that. (laughs) But the Metropolitan Division has three of the best teams in the East, the next three, really. The Rangers are atop Pittsburgh and Washington nipping at their heels. I know it's early, but I have a feeling that these are the three teams that are going to be battling it out for the top three spots. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Rangers, the Rangers is actually, I, I thought they'd be a playoff team, but I didn't quite expect them to be at the top of the division right now. So that that one's kind of shocking me, but they added a lot of depth on that team, and they're they're playing lights out. You have Link with the net. And then Pittsburgh, obviously, you knew they were going to be there after winning the Cup. And then Washington's there every year. But kind of like you and I in the Blues, Washington's <laughs> yeah. going to come down to, what do you do in the playoffs? 
Right, and that's the crazy thing about this division and the playoff setting is Washington's going to have to go through these teams to get the job done. I think the Rangers, Jimmy Vesey, he got a lot of hype coming out of college. He's playing pretty well, but you're getting a healthier team. You're getting Nash healthy. You're getting Broussard. Lundqvist is ageless. I don't, I don't understand it. The guy's late 30s, pushing 40, and still playing yeah. very good hockey. But Pittsburgh, they're a team that knows how to win pressure moments. They'll be fine. But I'm interested to see how this shakes out. Seeding could be important. I think, and I know they blew it last year, but Washington getting that home advantage is going to be big because I think they're the team of these three that needs it. Yeah, Washington's a team everyone's on. On board for when the playoff starts. This is their year. This is the year Ovi's going to get it. And then the first or second round exit, it seems like, every single year. Yeah, it's a shame. And they've bolstered their talent, and Barry Trotz has got them playing better defense. But... I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful it finally happens, but we'll see. Just to even get to the Stanley Cup would be a step up or a conference final. Quick other note on the East. We talked about the Atlantic, Montreal at, at the top, but the 2-3 race is interesting because Tampa Bay, a lot of people have high aspirations. We expected them to play a little better, Tyler. And Ottawa, surprisingly, this is a juggernaut team. They're playing like the Dallas Stars in the West. A lot of offense, not very, very good on the defensive zone. Are you buying either of these teams as legitimate cup contenders? Tampa, I am. You have Stamkos back, who's healthy, who's just lighting it up, as you expect. You have Bishop in that. I, I think they're going to be there. They're they're going to contend for the cup this year. Great coach and Cooper. Ottawa's a team I can't figure out right now. They seem for real, but can they sustain it all year? I'm not sure. But, you know, no. another thing on Ottawa that, that Craig Anderson gave me the other night, that was, yeah, pretty incredible, and that, that's something that could get a team going as well. Right, and you know, I mean, Craig Anderson, for people listening that don't know the story, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. They kept it very private. He took a leave of absence without that being revealed. His wife told him to go back and play. When the other goalie got hurt, he pitches a shutout, doesn't get to practice. Just an awesome story. The best part about that was, you know, was him coming, was the team rallying around him and, and showing the support. You know that locker room. When they heard what was happening, when they heard he was coming back, they would have done anything to get that win. And I agree. I think it could uplift the team going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Some of those intangible things that happen in the locker room that no one knows about that outside of the team. Right. I think Boston in the wild card spot, Tyler, is a team that can make a push. Marchand's playing out of his mind. Bergeron's still good, and Tukarask continues to play well. Jersey has that other wild card spot, though, and it makes me wonder, is this the year you think the streak ends, the Red Wings finally miss the playoffs? I don't know. I would think you almost have to say so this year. <laughs> it's just that I'm just not sure they have it. He's two years removed from Babcock leaving, who was pretty much the face of the franchise for many years now, and I, I think they're probably finally kind of feeling that effect now, two years later. Right. I Anybody that picks Detroit to make the playoffs, I think they're just doing it out of history. I think out of the fact that they've made it, and they could make it. There is some talent there with Larkin and, and Tatar and some of those guys, Nyquist, but I don't know. I, I don't see it. And and, I, and that's more of a bump on Boston and, and New Jersey to some extent with Schneider and goal, one of the best goalies in the league playing good. I don't know that they can attack some of these teams and pass them in the standings. I know it's early, but there's some talented teams in front of them. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would say New Jersey is another one of those surprise teams year that a lot of people probably wouldn't have had them to the playoffs preseason but they're playing really well so far right and the team not playing well you know the islanders geez second last <laughs> in the conference 
I pencil the Blue Jackets in bottom three every year. To see the Islanders in bottom two with Carolina is just staggering. It makes me feel bad for John Tavares because he does just about everything yeah. they ask of him. And uh, his coach, his Flintstone-looking coach, isn't very good at helping him around. Yeah, that, that's going to be interesting to watch. There's rumors about the team possibly being for sale. The Tavares want to just get out of wow. town before things really collapse. Yeah, and, that, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. And we know that has the, I mean, what could go wrong when the Islanders are for sale? There's nothing been bad <laughs> happening to their franchise before <laughs> when they're for sale. Yeah. So before we dive into another sport real quick, talk with Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch effect, I just want your thoughts on some of the young influx talent starting with, you know, Austin Matthews in Toronto. He looked good early. The schedule and his team uh, is catching up with him. But we, there's Matthews, there's Patrick Laine in Winnipeg. We mentioned McDavid, Eichel in Buffalo, and even Johnny Gaudreau to some extent in Calgary is still pretty young. Is this the best time you can remember as someone following the NHL for the influx of young offensive talent? I would have had to say, especially with the age of all these guys. I remember when Crosby and Ovechkin came in. That was kind of the mm-hmm. eye-opener for me and my generation as kind of the next Lemieux Crosby. But now you have six guys at that same level coming into the league. It's funny, too, because there's going to be growing pains. We saw it a little with, I mean, McDavid is, is the gold standard right now, but even he, him last year couldn't make all the difference in the world. Matthews, the best debut I've ever seen, maybe in, in any sport, scoring four yeah. goals in his first game. But tonight, I mean, they're playing a good example. Tonight, they're playing the Kings. They're getting, you know, shellacked. I think it's 4 nothing at the time we're doing this. And that's a team coached by Daryl Sutter and the Kings that know how to grind it out. They're going to put clamps on. They're going to frustrate him. And the team around him not being very good, I think, is going to be a learning experience. But ultimately, you look at Goudreau. You look at Eichel and these guys. We're, we're really, I don't think it's a stretch to say that they're going to be carrying the league for a long time. And on the international stage, the uh, Team North America in the World Cup, the under-23 team just intensified, I think, what we already knew. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to ask you, with McDavid and Matthews kind of on two of the historic teams in Canada, do you think it'll help the NHL out ratings-wise and just popularity-wise in the U.S.? They're a big-time Canadian teams, but not really a big market in the U.S., or do you think the impact's just going to be up north? Well, I think... It's kind of a cop-out, but I think it will help them slightly, not as much as if it was in L.A. or a Chicago or a Boston or St. Louis, but it's probably better than a Carolina or a Columbus or something like that or Arizona. But I think it's good to get your historic franchises relevant. I'm not somebody that believes that you need them to win all the time, like today the Lakers in the NBA. I don't think it's good. The NBA is kind of a bad example because only two or three teams win or are competitive every year. But it's good to have them competitive. You need that. I think it's terrible when they're dormant and they're non-thoughts. But I don't think they need to be winning every time. And it's not a guarantee. You know hockey's a little different. One guy doesn't make all the difference in the world. Ovechkin's been the yeah. best goal scorer for the last 11 years, and he hasn't been able to make it to a conference final. But I think it'll help a little bit. Yeah, I mean, just imagine if Matthew could deliver a Stanley Cup to um, <laughs> Toronto. It would just it would be insane. They'd probably just build him a statue the next day, I think. Probably he could retire and, and be fine from that moment on. But if there's one thing yeah. we know about Toronto right now, he's a long way away from that, even with all his skill in the world. <laughs> they lost that game. Yeah. He scored four goals in. They didn't even win that game. So yeah, I think we're a ways away there. All right, 
Still talking with Tyler Tesson on the Money Mitch Effect. And before I let you go, I want to get your thoughts on some football stuff, the NFL. And the first question I'm going to ask you, we've been friends for a while, so I want to get your take on this. I know it's a difficult situation, but the Rams leave St. Louis, come out here to Los Angeles. They're 3-5, and five, not really a surprise. Jeff Fisher's a couple losses away from setting the all-time record uh, for most losses by a head coach. Is the thought process in St. Louis now indifferent to the NFL, or would you say people actively rooting against Los Angeles? To the rest of the NFL, more indifferent, but I think people are actively cheering against the Rams every weekend. I, it just, the process in general just left a bad taste in everyone's mouth here. It just, there wasn't any transparency from the NFL. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's the confidence just... <laughs> of the Rams organization doesn't help out at all. Right. When the Rams went up, went 3-1, and one, I thought that was pretty comical. You see that with the NFL when the schedule puts you in a position to do, to do well. But we figured this would happen. And the fact that I had a couple friends at the game this past week, the loudest cheers were for Jared Goff, and it turned into a comedy <laughs> show at the end. So, you know, he's still not going to play. And I think, you know, I actually was in that position at a much younger age when the Browns left for Baltimore. And at the very least, though, they changed their pads and uniforms and, and team name. I mean, this is the same team with just this different city attached to it. And I also think it helps It helps to hate them when they have guys like Fisher, but to a much larger extent, Stan Kroenke at the front and center, showing off his team in L.A. when he was nowhere to be seen in St. Louis. Yeah, and I honestly believe the Rams were drafted young and they didn't really care about winning the last couple of years in St. Louis, but... Now, it's just watching the team, it's just the same thing. I think maybe them off, Sneed and Fisher just really don't have a clue what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, the cat's on the bag. Jeff Fisher, what a career. Being able to coach with all these teams, actually having quarterbacks sometimes too, and still fighting his way to the middle. It's been, uh, it's it, been... Makes se- it makes $7 million. He ain't get a contract. Hey, it's, it's an honor. It's a good business. <laughs> it's an honor to watch him do his thing so average. Uh, all right, so... I do want your thoughts on last night's game before we dive into some deeper things here. The Seahawks Bills, Seahawks win by six. Craziest ending to a first half. Kickers are now, I guess, fair game to be lit up. <laughs> Richard Sherman all over the news, all over the game. I don't know. I, I think it's comical. I think it just shows that there's still a lack of understanding in the rule book by officials. And the NFL as a whole, the product might be dipping a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you can just, the ratings are just tanking this year. You know, I think the election has a big part of that, but just the number of flags that are thrown a game, it's just getting ridiculous. Half the plays have a penalty called on them now, and then, for instance, a play like yesterday, when it's a blatant call, nothing's even called, it's just it's amazing. Yeah, there is still a lack of understanding. The rule book's thick, and we don't really understand all of it as fans. And you know that that's highlighted when referees are having a tough time. But Seattle's a team, has a lot of flaws. They're, they've only lost two games this year, and they have flaws across the board. I think there's something, whether it's the injuries mounting up because it's a violent game, the Thursday night game doesn't help when they just send teams on the field three days later after they played. But the quality might be down. You have a lot of young, you have poor play at the quarterback position, but you have a lot of young guys playing because teams don't want to pay veteran contracts. They'll pay the young guys money, and they'll just try to learn on the fly, and it's a disaster in some areas. Yeah, I mean, say what you want about Pete Carroll, but, you know, it's pretty amazing what he's done with this run with Seattle. Part of it, 
gotta get lucky and find the right quarterback, which he did with Russell Wilson, but he's definitely doing something right with that defense. They keep losing guys in free agency, and they just keep bringing them in every year, and they're doing the same thing this year, 5-2-1. and one. Looks like they're, you know, on the way to the playoffs again, even with a down year from Russell Wilson. Yeah, he's... Say which one about Pete Carroll, and the Lord knows we have. So now we'll uh, move on to some teams you're maybe buying or, or selling. You think Oakland, Dallas, Atlanta even, are they teams with you know, a lot of the league in flux? Are they teams that you think could be legitimate Super Bowl contenders? I'd have to say Oakland, I, I'm buying for sure, right? Their card's the real deal. You know, you have Mark Cooper, you have Murray there. Crabtree also, like that, that team offensively is just loaded. The division's down a little bit this year. I, I think they're, they're a legit contender. I, I think David Carr could end up being in the MVP discussion at the end of the year. Oh, yeah. I, I agree with that. I think Dallas is the best team right now in the NFC, and unless Tony Romo gets entered back into the equation. I don't know who would have the edge over them in Dallas in a home game, the way they're running the football and playing defense. Atlanta, though, I'm still skeptical, and that might just be my past and what this team's done, but I'm still not sold on them. Yeah, yeah, Atlanta, I, I can't fully buy in on them yet. It's really, if, if Julio and Matt Ryan are going nuts, they got a good shot of win, but you know those games where Julio just gets shut down and it looks like they can't do anything. Yeah, it's going to be something to see uh, how this NFL season unfolds with a lot less good teams than I can remember. This year seems a little odd in that regard. A lot more mediocre, a lot less very good teams. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's how I'm judging the NFL right now. Yeah, and it's hard to just tell who's who's for real. Some weeks some teams look amazing, and next week it looks like they've never played football before. You know, at the beginning of the year, I think a lot of people thought the Vikings were a sure thing for Super Bowl bound from the NFC, and then they've kind of just fallen off the tracks lately. Green Bay, you never know. They're an enigma. They're, you never know what you're going to get week to week with Rodgers. Yeah, Green Bay, wow. I, I can't understand that. They lost to a Colts team that has probably three or four talented players on their roster yeah. and still found a way to go into Lambeau. Maybe Mike McCarthy needs to figure out who else he can blame for the play calling. I think he's running out of options there. Yeah, yeah, that, that team's the one I can't figure out. And then, you know, AFC South, who, who knows who's coming out of there. That one's interesting and then yeah you know AFC North you know Pittsburgh just getting beat up by the Ravens last week which you know Roethlisberger obviously wasn't healthy but no one's running away with that division either yeah pretty wild and then lastly before I let you go Tyler your Super Bowl pick right now if you had to make a choice today who do you see playing in the big game man I think I'm gonna have to go with New England and the Cowboys okay going chalk although I should say New England that's might be the safest bet in sports right now that they go at yeah. least to the Super Bowl. They are on another level, and I would argue that Belichick, it's an unbelievable advantage for him that the quality of play is down, that the head coaching quality is down, that for whatever reason the product's down, Belichick being the wizard that he is can just exploit that and make teams look even more foolish. Yeah, it's, it's truly amazing. You don't want to play his way, even if you're the best defensive player, you'll He's not scared to trade you mid-season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Jamie Collins. Welcome to Cleveland. That's that's bad. That is uh, that's a harsh punishment <laughs> to be yeah. traded to Cleveland mid-season from the New England Patriots. But here he is, and then Dallas. I- I'm with you there. If 
they avoid the fruit in the Garden of Eden, so to speak, with Tony Romo. They got a they got a good thing going. They have a defense playing adequate. Ezekiel Elliott might be the best running back in football already. You can't go down that road with Romo. There's no way it doesn't end in anything but a disaster. You think they're going to stick with Prescott? With Jerry Jones, anything and everything is in play. We know that, but he's playing too well. Yeah. I think as long as they don't get blown out, you know, in any game, I, I just don't know how you could logically take him out. <laughs> right, but that is Jerry Jones. I mean, he doesn't always deal with logic at all, so <laughs> we'll see. It's going to be an interesting end of the season. I don't know. We talk a bit, a little bit as well about betting on this uh, podcast. There's going to be some interesting playoff lines <laughs> when someone has to win the AFC South and go into a playoff game. And the NFC North now, all of a sudden, that's in shambles. So there's going to be yeah. some interesting playoff games come January. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Tyler, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you having on. We'll have to do this again sometime. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good good catching up talking hockey. The NHL, uh, that's one product we can believe in. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for having me. That's really appreciate it. Huge shout out to both of my guests, Jose Youngs and Tyler Tesson. Thanks again to Tim Adams for supplying the music that you're hearing, to Brian Nelson for supplying the logo, and a reminder that you can catch the Money Mitch Effect on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play, as well as follow me on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21, where all the shows are posted, as well as some other uh, daily hot sports takes. I keep it to sports, you know, there's a lot going on right now. We recorded that podcast on a Tuesday night, Tuesday, November 8th, 2016, which I think will be remembered for a different reason that you probably would imagine. This is the second Money Mitch Effect episode this week. I'm planning one more on Friday, NFL Lions, an NBA preview. We haven't really gotten into that sport yet, so keep listening. It's a great time to be a sports fan. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening to the show, and I will catch you on the other side. Enjoy all the sports. Sports.